Warner Wallace. Welcome, Jim. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, I tell you, you tell me I'm your, your mentor. So I think we're both mentoring each other, right? <laughs> That's how this works. Well, Jim, you are uh, you are a cold case detective for what is it over 25 years? Yeah, yeah. I just yeah, started up a couple of cases. Just had another one uh, press release last week. Right. So hopefully, we're getting down to the the end of my initial list of about 30 that we tried to open years ago. But now uh, we're we're working through those. That's yeah, I do, do get a chance way. still to play with that. Mm-hmm. Well, Jim, you're a national speaker. You're best-selling author. You've done so much work in uh, advancing the Christian worldview using logic, evidence, based on your experience as a homicide detective. So you are a senior fellow at the Colson Center. You've done work with Biola University with Summit Ministries, etc. Um, so thank you for taking the time, my brother, and I hope that this conversation will be edifying to those who are engaging in the next generation, whatever even that means. Uh, yeah, I know, that's the trick, right? we got to right. figure out, like, what is this generation? What are they like? Yeah. And what do we even mean when we use the word generation anymore? That's that's starting to change a little bit, too. So, yeah, for sure. So, um, all right, let's go ahead and get started with the um, the Pew Research, uh, one of the most uh, foundational mm-hmm. works in uh, social analysis, uh, global trends. They argue that surveys show that young Americans and young people in general across 46 different countries under 40, that's defining the term, are it's very unlikely that their belief in God will increase in, in at the same level that the previous generations have. Matter of fact, it's going down. Um, this is um, in the Pew Research done by Stephanie Kalmarer. Any comments on the issue of how social media is affecting younger generations in their view of the spiritual and others? And, and, and ladies well, and gentlemen, as Jim is addressing this, um, we're focusing on his book so the next generation will know, which we'll be referencing throughout it. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, we wrote a chapter on some of this data. And our, our concern all along uh, has been not to be overly dramatic about it. Um, I, I, what we don't want to do is to be banging this bell. You know, young Christians are leaving, young Christians are leaving, therefore you should buy our book. <laughs> uh, we, we get it that there are, the, the, but the, if you look at the statistics, you'll have some people will argue that, no, you know, it's not as bad as they say or it is as bad as they say. Regardless of whether it's as bad as they say or not, what we do see is an over arching trend away from young people identifying as Christians. Now, in the past, you might have been able to argue that the young people who identified, probably like all of us, maybe you know, whatever age group, that I would identify as Christians may not have really been true believers anyway. That's not up for argument. I get that. But, but clearly, there is a trend away. When you ask and poll people, it seems like our numbers are decreasing, and they're decreasing at a probably faster rate amongst Gen Z believers. When I say Gen Z, what I mean is, is young people between the ages of, say, like 3 and 20. Uh, these are people, if you've got a junior higher in your family, if you've got a high school in your family, they would qualify in that Gen Z category. And, and I do think social media has a lot to do with it because if you look back just a couple of generations ago at the age of skepticism, sometimes that can be measured just basically on the basis of, well, at what point do most people become Christians beyond such point, uh, people don't. In other words, like if, if you weren't a Christian by the age of 18, say in the 1970s, 1980s, there's a good chance you weren't going to be, become a Christian because most Christians became made that decision by the age of 18. Well, that's, that number's reduced. So there's some polling that we talk about in the book that, that has it as low as the age of 12. So, so why is that happening? Well, it's happening because wherever you might have encountered true skepticism or diversity in religious thought, 
say, a generation ago, this technology of smartphone, Internet, information age technology now brings that information to you long before you ever get into college. It brings it to you while you're, you know, a kid in your mom's and dad's home. And and that's what's happening. We see that, that, the, that the Internet brings with it um, a, a number of claims, all of which appear to be equally valid. Right. And, and not that young people think that they're equally valid. Could be a lot of young people have more skepticism now and more distrust of their information sources now than ever before. But what I'm saying is, as much as they may distrust somebody else's website, they bring that same level of distrust to ours. So I think it's important for us to realize the impact of, of that much uh, information on young people. Okay, interesting. And it's helpful. Now, um, going back to that, that um, the research you all did um, in the doom and gloom issue, the article actually in the Pew Research ends with this interesting um, analysis. It says, it would be a mistake to assume the world overall is becoming less religious just because young people are less devout. In fact, many of the world's least religious countries have populations that are either shrinking or growing slowly. While, religion, while regions with the highest population growth tend to be very religious, specifically Sub-Saharan Africa and the East. Um, yes, now think about that for a second, though. That, that really is a product not of the strength of religious claims mm-hmm. or a process of evangelism on the part of any religious group. What it comes down to is that's a biological issue, that, that, that people who are believers, uh, theists of some stripe, whether it's Christian, Muslim, whatever it is, People who are believers are more likely to have more kids. So they out, and then the more secular you become, we see trending away from large families. Right. So that means that going forward two generations, there will be less secularists and more religious believers going forward. I think that is true. And, and I, that's why, I, you know, I don't want to bang this bell and say, but, but what's happening though is, and if you actually poll these young believers who say they're no longer Christians, mm-hmm. they do not say they are necessarily atheists. That the, the, the number of atheists and agnostics in Pew reports is growing so slowly that it's almost like it's within the range of statistical error. Mm-hmm. It may not be growing at all. And so the question really becomes is that you've got people who maybe do not believe in Christianity or they have disassociated themselves from the Christian church per se, but these young people are reachable. They are a mission field. Because they are not necessarily moving away from a belief in a higher power, a belief in God. That still is, is on the table for these folks. And it's still the nature also of a, a younger generations to learn and start exploring in their world, exploring their own um, inner natures and their own religions. This is something that's been the case since the beginning of mankind, isn't it? Um, oh, absolutely. It's I mean, nothing new. <laughs> it's just social yeah, media I'm, makes I'm it look like a, it's new. I'm right? writing a new book, and which I'm talking about. You know, often it's been said that the the number of of deities that predate Christian uh, uh, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. that those deities have some resemblance to Jesus. Like the people will say, yes. oh, Jesus never even lived. He's just been borrowed from all these, all these other prior mythologies. Well, that claim, if you actually examine all the prior mythologies, you'll see that claim is ludicrous. But what you do see from the beginning of human uh, uh, existence is a, an inclination toward a number of theistic attributes that we are drawn to uh, as humans. And I think that continues today. I think you see that people, even secular philosophers, will craft a world in which they have replaced the characteristics of theism with exactly the same characteristics attributed to some form of naturalism. Right. Interestingly, they cannot uh, help themselves but seek the same characteristics. 
They just want to explain them a different way. So I think that's just fascinating to me that, yeah, we are inclined, and we've gotten out of lots of research that talks about how we are, that the natural data point for humans, even if you believe in evolutionary processes, is not atheism, but is in fact theism. And, yes. and that's what you find a lot of secular researchers, anthropologists, are discovering. Yes, I found some research that indicates what you're saying there on a neurological mm-hmm. level, studying infants who, um, yep. by nature, believe in some kind of uh, creator to the things around them rather than a natural process. Yeah, and you know, and yeah. You know when, when they look at why they believe that, they, it's because they cannot imagine that the, the, the design properties they are seeing in um, their environment yes. uh, could be explained by natural. They, they, they see what they think are the attributes of design that they want to attribute to a designer. Imagine <laughs> that. Well, that's exactly <laughs> it's what we see. And the more educated yeah. we get, the more we deny the obvious, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Exactly. That's exactly All right. right. Yeah. Let's go down with your book. So we got that chapter one. We identified the generation. In chapter two of your book, he says, love understands. <clears throat> in that book, you talk about um, the connection between relationships and not just giving information but becoming the one who has a loving relationship so you can be the, the, the catalyst for that. Can you expand on that, what you mean by that? Yeah, that is something that is um, so simple and so true and it's largely overlooked by many of us who want to explain why Christianity is true even to the next generation right because I could uh, create a website which we have at coldcasechristianity.com right it's got thousands of pages of content wonderful stuff by the way well I guarantee you that took a lot less time to to create those truth claims and to document those truth claims than it would to develop true relationships with a thousand students Mm. This is the problem, is mm. that it's so easy for us just to spout the claim, right. and it takes so much less work and so much less time than it does to build the relationship. Wow. So that's why, to, to be honest, um, the transformational kinds of things that we're talking about that occur in the lives of young people are really not going to be people who write books or websites or create videos. It's going to have to happen at the level of uh, 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 relationship, so that means that the people who have the best um, opportunity to influence young people are going to be the three groups we talk about in this book. It's parents, youth workers, and Christian educators. Why? Because they spend more hours in the con- in the presence of young people than any other groups. Yes, and it takes hours to develop relationships. Here's the problem, though: for those of us who have relationships with young people, because maybe you're a youth pastor, maybe you're a parent, maybe you're a Christian educator. The problem is if they have a question, a really true, deep question about Christian worldview, and they ask you, you have one opportunity, you, know, you have to be able to have an answer for them. In other words, it's not just the relationship either. It's the relationship from which a truth claim comes. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to speak the truth. And, and I mean, when they ask this question, the question is related to the problem of evil. How could an all-powerful, all-loving God, how could that kind of a God, sorry, my phone is ringing in the background here. How could that kind of God be the kind of God who would allow all the stuff that we see in the world around us, all the evil yes. that we see in the world around us? This. Look, that's a question that pretty much everyone asks at every age group. When I go to, to speak at campuses, mm-hmm. that is also what I, I, I get at campuses. I mean, these, mm-hmm. these are kinds of questions people ask. And the question for me is, 
are you, as the person who has the deep relationship, are you the kind of person who can answer the question? Because if we have to have both, relationship and uh, a source for truth. And if, they, if you want the person who's a source for truth with those kinds of questions, trust me, they will find that out there with people with whom they have no relationship. Right. So in the end, we wanted to have both. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And it, thank you, Jim, for saying that. I just, um, I'm reiterating the fact that your life speaks so loud, it, it what you say becomes irrelevant after, at times. Um, oh, that then, is so true. That could yeah. be a trite statement, but you and I both know that's that's. Yeah, old. they're watching us. They're watching us. I remember one of my students. He was a brilliant student from my philosophy of religion course. He wrote me a number of months after the class was over, telling me that the class had a deep impact on his life to the point where he was he's constantly suicidal. But the class had helped him with that, and and he was thanking me for that. And I was, I was shocked. You never know what people are thinking in the class, Jim. That's right. Um, and he gave me this vivid image. He said, "I can't stop thinking about death." And the death of my parents, death of my loved ones, because I see that the end result of all of us is eternal nothingness. If what I believe is true, but if what you're telling me is true, it's a different world. That's right. And I'm struggling with it. And so I told him, let's meet for lunch. So we have. We've met multiple times. But I'm telling you, Jim, the the time it involves, the time it takes to do something like that, it does... um, something that you have to dedicate to. You can't just send a blog out and say, hey, read this book. You have to pour yourself right. into people. That's so true. That's, that's such a good point. And that's why, as you see um, the pattern of Jesus, right, the multitudes, the 12, the 72, the 12, the 3, um, that that shrinking concentric circle demonstrates what's really so. Look, you can. St- I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't have the audience of the multitudes right. or the audience of the seventy-two, but let's get real. We're only going to have true impact and influence on the smallest number of people with whom we have serious relationships, and that's why we've got to say this over and over and over again. This is about relationships. If you can't develop the kinds of relationships that uh, make a difference. In the lives of young people, you have no chance of really reaching them. Wow, that's powerful. So it's going to be important for us. That's that's why every chapter in that book starts with the word love. What does love look like in the context of our relationships? Now, granted, we're going to argue that love looks like the kind of thing that that, that teaches Christian worldview ultimately. <laughs> right. But 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 because because we care about this. Look, in the end, we we can share the truth about how to get your best job, about how to avoid hanging out with the wrong people. We also what we're doing as as young people is we are sharing truth with them. Uh, the most important truth though is whether Christianity is true. So so we have to. It all angles toward that. But again, it all starts with do we love students in these ways that would allow us to develop this kind of relationship to have this kind of impact. In chapter three, you summarize that with, I'll just give a quick summary for our listeners. I'll move to chapter four. Some of the um, strategies are share your own stories, enter your kid's world, practice empathy, actually care, yeah, <laughs> be, be a good listener, express unconditional love. Let's see here, here. Mentor a young person. You said set reasonable boundaries, pray, share yeah. a meal, and have a conversation. Any comments on those before we go to love equips? Yeah, no, I think that this, some of this stuff sounds like, well, duh. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. Here's the problem, though. We don't do these things. Uh, we just don't. Hmm. We get busy in other things. You know, even as uh, having empathy for the next generation, whenever we're talking from the stage and we're, we're asking people, hey, give us some adjectives that describe young people, you'd be surprised that most of the time those adjectives are not positive. They're negative. Like, like, like we grow, we think that we had it harder when we were younger. We we're impatient with kids that we think are entitled or that are right. soft in some way. And this comes out in our, when we when you ask people, older people, to describe younger people, that's what they say. 
Now, I want you to think about that. Do you think young people don't hear us saying that? They, don't, they know how we think about that. Oh, yeah, they know well. So so that that's one of those things we have to at least be honest with ourselves and say, hey, yeah, I could probably do a better job of trying to empathize. Because trust me, we didn't like the old people in front of us who said, well, back in my day, it was a lot harder. <laughs> so we can't be that person for young people today. In your um, okay, well said, brother. Thank you. Uh, so the next chapter, you talk about love eclipse, which is basically um, a, an apologetic for apologetics. I think. Uh, yes. In there, um, well, I'll pull people out to your other books on cold case Christianity as well, forensic faith, and the uh, case for the creator, which I thought was my favorite. But anyway, uh, those are the ones I would point people to for that. But specifically in this chapter, you you talk about recognizing the carpermentalization of faith. Uh, and you say that that has been seeped into the church. Uh, it, it has something that's been set into our mindset that faith is a different category. You keep that private. That's between you and God or me and Jesus, quote unquote. Go ahead and address that um, that, that issue. Um, yeah, that's not hard to do, right? Because I think in some ways it's 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 practically convenient for us to be able to compartmentalize. I also think that because we multitask so much, because our phones and our technology allows us to multitask, it doesn't seem surprising to me that we find ourselves multitasking in other areas as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of what uh, I see happening is that, that – and also I just think about this for a second – we can create, and I didn't really write much about this in the book, but it strikes me as a, a real contributing factor. We, we can create for ourselves these little micro-environments in which we can uh, isolate ourselves from any other varying opinion and fall into the trap of thinking that our little secluded world is reality because we have a technology now that allows us to, to watch everything on demand Yes. And from whatever unique perspective, so let's say you're just somebody who uh, you're politically in one direction or the other. You have an interest in, uh, say, comics uh, from one uh, source or another, and you only have an interest in certain kinds of characters in the comics. From so, do you realize you can create a world in which all of your news, all of your entertainment, all of your media consumption can be finally crafted. That's how many options we have now. We even have these weird little offshoot options that allow us to isolate ourselves and create our own little environments for each other. And, and that's why you see the kind of polarization you see right now. The technology has something to do with it. It creates a complete autonomy. You know, we didn't have that autonomy. Grow- I didn't have that growing up. I mean, here I had ABC, CBS, and NBC. That was it in America <laughs> that you had in terms of networks. If it didn't appear on one of those three networks, it was not available to you. And you had to watch it whenever it was scheduled. You realize that no one's watching TV that way anymore. I'm not watching TV that way anymore. If I want to watch it, I'll either DVR the thing or I'll just get it on demand. Right. But the point is I'm not going to watch it on their schedule. So yeah, we have been able to craft for ourselves uh, lives and experiences that were even the news sources we have are only the news sources that reflect our pre-existing values. So compartmentalization of uh, faith is not just limited to faith then. Yes, yeah, it's, it's happening at every level. So so why would we be surprised that it's happening also? And that, the bigger problem, though, is for young people who would say, yeah, I identify as a Christ follower, but not when it comes to like moral teaching related to sex. 
Right. Or not when it comes to, uh, the, you know, teaching related to, like all the hot topic cultural issues in which Christianity is no longer, uh, informing culture, where it seems like it's, Christianity has lost its favor with culture. There's still young people who can say, well, I can call myself a Christ follower, but just ignore or, or find a way to, to twist scripture or find a way to argue around scripture in these areas that, that, cause that's, that's really about, and also, if you've privatized this, then how often are you going to actually want to speak it publicly? Here's what it comes down to. Uh, we haven't done a good job with young people describing the difference between subjective and objective truth claims. Mm. And because we haven't done that, young people can take something that's an objective claim, like the claim God exists, and they can perceive it to be a subjective claim. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, it's privately held. There's no point in my arguing. You don't argue about your favorite dessert with people. You don't argue about your favorite TV show with people. You just say, okay, that's your favorite. This is my right. favorite. Right. So if we're not careful, we have to help young people see that difference. We talk about that a little bit in the book. Yeah, that's why I recommend that book very strongly. Then, Jim, would you um, uh, wrap up this particular section with saying this, that your faith is to be intimately personal, but not private. That's right. That, that you're pers- you're, you have a subjective experience within the objective reality of theism, of Christian theism. That is objectively true, or it's false, but the point is it's objectively. It's not grounded in your personal experience. It's grounded in whether or not the object, Christianity, is true. If it is true, it transcends your experience. You can have a subjective experience within that objective reality. But don't confuse the two. Okay. That's important for young people to see. So either God exists and Jesus Christ is a revelation of God's self-revelation of God on earth, or he's not. Right. Okay, whether I believe right. it or not becomes a subjective thing. Yes. Okay. I, okay. I, my personal opinion cannot make it true if it's false. It cannot make it false if it's true. It has no power. Over and then it. you're living in a world where people tell you your sex is your own opinion. <laughs> well, every, this is the problem. So we have, if, if we, yeah. But why would you be surprised, though, that, no. that people don't, don't understand the difference between um, what is objectively true about anything and what you subjectively feel to be true? Let's camp on that. Let's imagine that for a second. If you could imagine that you could change everything uh-huh. that is objectively true to simply a subjective opinion, why couldn't I then claim that I am, let's say, uh, Korean-American if there's some benefit that is afforded Korean-Americans that I can't get as a just a Caucasian male? What if I could get something as a Korean male that's offered in some environment? Can I just say, well, to my view, I feel like I'm Korean. Is that going to allow me to get that financial benefit, let's say? Let's say I'm, I'm, I'm applying for a, a scholarship that's only available to Koreans. Right. You would, yeah, they'll be laughing out. Yeah. Can, can I say that I... Can I so we would agree that there are some things about our nature that are objectively true. And so we have to kind of help people see that claim. It's not really a claim that is grounded uh, strictly in Scripture. So therefore, if you're a Christian, you're stuck with this view of the world. It really is about us trying to help young people see the difference between objective claims and subjective claims. And the difference between the two is one is very personal and one is very public? Is that Well, so the difference is, so, so I always say it this way, subjective, objective. Some claims are grounded and decided by subjects. So they're third person I'm facts. a subject. So in other words, I can say, uh, I love Hyundai automobiles. Uh-huh. Uh, Hyundais are the best cars on the road. Okay, okay that's, that's my opinion. Um, I, 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 my, my, my favorite car is a Hyundai. That's my subjective. I, as the subject, get to decide if that claim is true. Okay, 
um, Hyundai's um, are um, Hyundai automobiles have four wheels. Okay, that's an objective claim. My opinion has no power over that claim. I can go outside and falsify it or verify it. I can go outside and see that that Hyundai has four wheels. Now, now I cannot make it have less than four wheels by changing my opinion. The subject has no control over that truth claim. So that's the difference. Some claims are grounded in subjects. They are personal opinions. They can either be private or you could express them. And some truth claims are grounded in objects. I cannot change them with my personal opinion. And this is why this is so critical. So I always use this analogy. If I told you that in my opinion, NyQuil can cure tuberculosis, if I'm dying of tuberculosis, I would hope you would argue with me that my opinion is powerless over what cures tuberculosis. And those are the things we should be arguing about, the things that are objectively true, in the interest not of, the things that are subjectively true. In the interest of my listeners, I know this question is going to come up, so I'll ask it on their behalf. As a cold case detective, you are investigating hard physical evidence is what they'll tell you. Jim, the concept you're referring to in religion and an epistemological level in God on a spiritual level is not a hard thing that you can investigate like walking into a room and checking the actual blood stains or the, the, the rigor mortis that's set in on the body. It's a lot more subjective than that. Address that objection. Oh, okay, well, first of all, so let's be sure about categories. First of all, um, there's no such, thing, no such thing as hard evidence. That's not a category. You, people talk about it that way, but there is no category in the legal genre for hard evidence. There's just two forms of evidence, direct and indirect. Everything has the potential to be used as evidence. Everything. Everything you see in the room, what's not in the room, what he said, what he didn't say. Um, where he went afterwards, where he didn't go afterwards, where he, what, what people, you know, everything, every single thing has evidential power. And there's only two forms. And so yes, all the stuff that we use to, and again, what we're doing here is we are, we are, we, we know that something objectively true occurred in that crime scene. In other words, what happened there is not a matter of my jury's opinion. It's not a matter of any single juror's subjective opinion. Something happened there that you cannot change by changing your mind. You're not making it true by deciding, by rendering a verdict. You're simply saying that from the evidence, the best and most reasonable inference to what happened objectively is blank. So, so yes, what we're doing with God is we're saying that everything, just like in any kind of case, everything qualifies. Uh, the beginning of the universe, how we, what, how we explain that, that qualifies. The, the, the fine-tuning we see in the universe, the, the appearance of life out of non-life in the universe, the appearance of design in biology, the appearance of mind, the existence of mind, the existence of free agency. These things have evidential value. So if you said, well, yeah, but you don't have any hard, well, that's no, what are you talking about? What is hard evidence? That's not a category. If you say, well, DNA, DNA is what's called indirect evidence. Fingerprints are indirect. Blood spatter is indirect evidence. The only thing that qualifies as direct evidence is eyewitness testimony. So what we have, and you have all of these things in the universe, the beginning of the universe, the fine-tuning in the universe, the appearance of life in the universe, the appearance of, fine, of, of designing and biology, the existence of mind and consciousness, the existence of free agency. These things may not seem like much, but they are the kinds of indirect evidence that we would use to determine what happened 
who is the cause who what how do we account for this universe the way it is so it's it, there are no hard evidences we would ask that question what do you mean by hard evidence we're talking about dna that's not hard evidence that's called indirect evidence fingerprints are indirect evidence blood spatter is indirect evidence you only have two kinds of evidence indirect evidence and the only thing that qualifies as direct evidence is eyewitness testimony that's the stuff that we see in the new testament where we have gospels that appear or at least we can test them as eyewitness accounts to see if they hold up if they do they would be strong direct evidence Wonderful. so we have two forms of evidence to use in making this assessment the problem we have most of the time is just that people watch tv and have no idea what qualifies as evidence Mm, this is brilliant, Jim. And I recommend people uh, look at the books that you've already written on that regard, especially the case for the creator and forensic evidence as well. Um, forensic faith, excuse me. All right. Yeah, God's crime scene, we talk about all eight oh. lines of evidence. Yes. yes. Okay, God's crime scene, that's, a, that's the best one. All right. Um, the next chapter here, there's one, uh, actually something that really stood out to me, where you talk about in Love Ignites, for every why you give, excuse me, for every gi- what you give, you must give two whys. When you are, speaking, yeah. especially if you're an educator, it says or a parent. I imagine. Go ahead and expand on that, Jim. Yeah, that's the thing that uh, you know we're trying. I'm trying to figure out like how do I help people uh, um, overcome what is probably the bigger threat to teaching theism, which is not atheism, it's apathyism. It's this mm. idea that I just don't care. You know, you, you, right. you've, I remember talking to Greg Kokel about this years ago, and Greg's got a ministry called Stand to Reason, and, and he, for a long time, you know, would, would he, he's, he's got great Rethink Student Apologetics conferences, but Greg will tell you that's not his favorite group to talk to, because sometimes it feels like he would say, you're kind of talking to paintings. They don't always respond. <laughs> Sometimes you see it. By the way, we see this all the time when we go to Berkeley. Uh-huh. Taking trips of you students to Berkeley, what we tell our young Christians when they go on the campus of Berkeley to, to, to share the gospel, the thing they're going to encounter is not so much atheism as it just is flat apathy. And, and right. you'll see this in the, on the part of young people. So one way to overcome that is to simply provide two whys for every what. Because I think what causes the apathy, apathy is that they're in a world that's saturated with truth claims. Online, everywhere you go, all over the media, what, 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 what. That's fine, but it's, it gets to be kind of boring. Yes. The reality of it is young people want the two whys. And they don't want you to wait. Don't give them the what, and then a week later give them the two whys. Not even ten minutes later give them the two whys. You've got to give the two whys almost immediately along with the what. The first why is, why is it true? You're making a claim. You know, the Bible says this. Really? Okay, first of all, you can make a claim. You can support that with either the verses from Scripture. But more importantly, it turns out the Bible describes the world the way it really is. Mm. So for every claim in Scripture, trust me, that you can find a sociological study or a biological study that will actually support the claim. So it's not like there isn't any evidence that if you didn't even have Scripture, you'd still come to this conclusion because it turns out the Bible describes the world the way it really is. So if I say, well, you know, that, that relationships are of this nature, do, are, are the kinds that are God-ordained and they, they produce the results that God would have for you. Well, it turns out, if you look, for example, at the success sequence that people have described sociologically, that success sequence that, 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 that keeps people out of poverty, that allows them to live healthier, biologically healthier lives, it's a success sequence that's pretty interesting, right? It's to delay, it's to, it's to, to have an education and a job before you are married and have kids. I mean, this really? Is, right. You know, it's, yeah. there's a sequence that if you take the sequence out of order and you pop out three kids before you get married statistics show us 
that that leads to, number one, less biological health um, uh, in terms of quality and shorter lifespans and uh, higher rates of uh, financial dependency or of, of low income. Mm-hmm. So, so you, look, this is this is not now, isn't that interesting? That's the same value system that is supported by Scripture, and there is a way to support that even with studies that are done on a secular level. This is great. So, I, I think that's we got to help our kids to see why is the claim true. Now, the second why is why should that why do I care? Yeah, why is it relevant? Why? So what? So you, okay, so mm-hmm. so that we have to help our students see. That, that this stuff actually matters and can explain their own experience in such a way, like when your student said, hey, I'm struggling with this, and if what you said is true, well, guess what? It does change things. Mm-hmm. If what you taught in that class was true, it would have an impact on his own struggles with uh, suicidal thoughts or thoughts related to kind of anxiety over the end of life. Mm-hmm. And these are the things that actually have an impact. As a matter of fact, all the deepest wants and desires and questions asked by humans coincidentally happen to be answered in Scripture. Hmm. So, so it's, it's worth, if you want to, so look, I'm not saying we ought to believe this because it works, but it turns out if it's true, it, it has some impact on, on how we live our lives. And we're able to do things uh, for the glory of God that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Um, so it's important for us to, I think, and by the way, that's what makes this whole thing interesting. If you want people to be care about this, give them a reason to care. Give them the two whys for every what. You know, I was, I was always going through this. I was thinking about this with my own kids. Um, <laughs> it sounds kind of diabolical, but I think it's, it's, it's powerful. You put kids in an environment where everyone around them says amen to everything they say. They don't really grow intellectually or spiritually. But what if you could subject them to, let's say, an atheist boot camp or um, the, 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 the reason rally where they actually enter these areas. You mentioned this in some of your other research, Jim, that there is um, a place called Maven, Maven, um, where, where young people engage the secular environment, like you mentioned at Berkeley, where they're put yes. into the, the wolves' den. Rather than yes. um, expand on one of the ways we can help people learn about their faith is by engaging those directly who disagree or are indifferent to it and helping them see the, the difference it makes. Yeah, that's so true. So we started this when I was a youth pastor. Uh, we wanted a trip that would um, give us a, um, a challenge in the area of philosophy and Christian apologetics. So we decided to take our kids to Berkeley for uh, six days. Mm-hmm. And Brett Conkle is a good friend of mine. He has a ministry called Maven. It's also uh, at maventruth.com. Just go to maventruth.com. He still does these trips. And I'm teaching this class, right, on, on Friday and Saturday of this week at Biola. And I was going through all of my old youth pastor um, uh, presentations to young people because, you know, I've forgotten myself what that, what that looked like, right? Because, I mean, I haven't been a youth pastor in a number of years. I haven't been a lead pastor in a number of years. As I'm going through these messages, I'm realizing, wow, we basically, every time we talked about any of these topics, we punched our kids in the face first. You know? <laughs> we, we basically said, said, here's the claim against you. Before we really started to talk about why this was true. So on every Sunday, we, we spent time, um, challenging them and with the danger, with the, with the, the opposition. What does the opposition say on this topic? Mm-hmm. And why is that true or false? And so we, I mean, that was a consistent part of, I mean, not just the, the beginning of our, our teaching, but if we talked for 40 minutes, 
we probably did that three times. That's wonderful. Um, wow. Just kind of bring students back to reality, you know. And so we would role play as atheists. Um, we, this all started for us because we were teaching theology and we wanted it to come to life. So we started taking trips to Utah. And then when that was successful, we said, okay, great. But how many this is theology is so important? This That's is going out into the highways yeah. and byways, right? Actually engaging yeah. the world rather than just sit around talking about it. You know, I took my yeah, apologetics yeah. class to a mosque. <laughs> yes, good. good for you. That's exactly I know it takes, it takes wisdom. You really need to be prepared because they're really trying to uh, to win your students over when they get there. So, oh no, they'll they will definitely let you guys come in. Oh yeah, they brought out the pizza, they, the hummus. They are better prepared. If you're not careful, they're better prepared than you are. Yeah. Uh, so so that's something. That's why we you know these mosques are there as opportunities also to proselytize. For I mean, this is true probably of every religious group. So I'm not saying I'm not, not upset about it. But Christians do this as well. But my point is. Are we, are our young people prepared to do that? Are they prepared to, because by the way, when I take them to Utah, the Mormons see the Christians as the lost people group. Just like when you went to the mosque, the Muslim uh, imam sees all you Christians as the lost people group. Yes. And they, they're prepared. And if they, if they, and by the way, if that is the, we are the largest group to evangelize our Christians mm. in our country still. You know, those who are theists, the largest group of theists are still Christians. So that means that the, the smaller groups have prepared themselves to reach the larger group, even though you might not have prepared yourself in the larger group or to reach the smaller group because they're smaller. So they are more prepared to reach the Christian than the Christian typically is to reach them. Mm. And that's why it's a good time to go because um, our young people really get challenged in that they get like, like they get beat up. I mean, it causes them to study even harder. Look, you, we don't just I don't just bring people places. I, I say, okay, we're heading to that place in ten weeks. We're going to spend the next ten ten weeks, right? Eight, eight really. But you know, I'll give us a couple of weeks there to take off. But 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 we're going to spend eight weeks preparing for that trip. And by the way, the trip is just the excuse I'm using to turn the eight weeks of teaching into eight weeks of training. It was so that's really all I'm doing. Yeah, I remember we we trained for that before we went to the mosque, and I was so proud of some of the questions on the manuscript evidence, the life of Muhammad, his relationship with his wives that the students were asking because yeah. we focused on training and learning this before we even got there. But but the impact comes when they're actually in the water rather than just reading about it. Yeah. This is good stuff, Jim. Jim, this is a wonderful book. I recommend this to everyone uh, who's going to be a leader or somebody who's engaging a generation that seems to be apathetic. As Pascal told us, one of the um, greatest weapons that the demonic has is apathy and distraction. Uh, yeah. And this is a good resource that you have produced that God has put through your hands to us. So thank you for that, Jim. Thank you. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you saying that. Um, any final words to um, uh, parents who are struggling, um, maybe who have a prodigal, uh, people who are, um, they want to reach people, but they, they talk to them and all they want to talk about is Marvel movies or the sports, uh, the next sports game. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I get distracted by these things as well. Yeah, they're, they're, they're fun. They're, they have their place. Yes, but they still. do, they do. But what I would say is that, look, God does what God does. And so uh, I, I knew as a guy who became a Christian at 35 that if you knew me at 34, you wouldn't have probably given me many good odds to becoming a Christian at all. Mm. Yet here I am. So I, I'm a little more relaxed with my own kids because I know my path was not direct, took a lot of years, but here I am anyway. So don't ever lose uh, uh, hope. Uh, a lot of this stuff happens after you have your own kids, not because I needed help with my kids and ran back to church. I never was in church to begin with, but because as a father, I started to get a better sense of what a father might do 
and even a heavenly father. So when all those parallels in scripture are talking about what God might do in any given situation were described, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I can see that because I, I do something similar with my own kids. So, so I think, um, that's helpful just to be patient. Number one. Number two is, well, I didn't want, we didn't want to write a book that would be another book that scolds you for what you haven't been doing or that shames you for what you haven't been doing or that provides you like 80 things you know you're never going to do. <laughs> so like, yeah. what we wanted to do is to give you a bunch of options, which we have, and just say, just do one. Just pick one that works for you. And it might be the one that requires the least amount of time right now. And if you get a chance to do more later, fine. But if you just do one of these things, you'll see something change. And that's what we're hoping to do is take small steps toward a bigger um, solution. Amen, brother. And I, and I'll, maybe I'll close with this um, word from Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God is with us and anything we're doing uh, and the things that we shouldn't be doing <laughs> he's there um, and the end result is that he will rise up above the flames and he'll be there for us uh, for in our generation and, and the one after us he will always be there that's so true thank you brother for your time and the work you're doing thanks for having me I appreciate it alright